Hello, everybody. We have a fantastic show for you today. Return guest Henry G. Man, I cannot talk enough about his book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth. This is one of my favorite episodes of the show. So fantastic. And not only that, this is this is one of my first recordings since uh, coming back from a, a winter break. Had all sorts of crap that I had to work on um, and all sorts of exciting things being announced. One, I have a residency starting in Las Vegas Sundays, April 23rd, Psychedelic Sundays at Area 15. In Las Vegas, they are partners with Meow Wolf, the artist collective, if you've ever heard of them. Such a perfect venue. It's not a casino or anything. It's it's just this really immersive, epic, awesome art space. Look it up if you haven't checked it out. Um, there's I'm going to have some um, sneaky ticket links on Shane Moss, M-A-U-S-S dot com. Maybe even by the time that you're watching this or very soon, they're um, they're not announcing it just yet because it's actually a new room uh, that they've built. And this show is part of a big announcement for uh, for the show in this new room. Um, so that's going to be like March 4th or something like that. It's going to be announced. I'm so excited. I'm still in Raleigh at the moment. Uh, I was trying to make um, mom, uh, mom fest two happened here and everything fell apart a whole long story. Uh, so it's, it's getting pushed back, um, to sometime next year, finding different locations, stuff like that. But, uh, we are instead going to have a mind under matter. Uh, and here we are get together. Um, I'm, I'm basically telling, uh, fans of mine that want to like all hang out in Vegas that if you want to come to my May 14th show that whole weekend, come, it's not no extra fee or anything, just whatever you find for plane tickets or, or, uh, casinos hotels or whatever like there's a palace station right by area 15 that um I, i've stayed there for under a hundred dollars uh, a night and it's a decent good room it's just off the strip so it's a really good deal and um and so i'll i'll just we'll we'll figure it out on discord um, if you're, if you're not on discord, but you're interested in hearing more, hit me up. I can, I can send you a link. There'll be more details coming soon, but my guess is like probably just a whole bunch of us will walk around on the strip on the Saturday and I'll just have the whole weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We'll probably like go to area 15. There's this amazing Omega Mart weird, uh, art installation. It's this whole, um, alien world essentially it's so cool um, before my show Monday I'll be around to um, to hang out with people and just play it by ear there's a bunch of cool stuff to do outdoors and this is kind of I'm uh, uh, planning this off the um, kind of by the seat of my pants a little bit um, because I was uh, disappointed there's not going to be a camp out festival um, this year, there's all sorts of good stuff in the works. I'm starting a science communication nonprofit. That's going to be, um, the, takes a long time to start a new profit, a nonprofit, but it's in the works and it's going to be the umbrella for, uh, for here we are and for, um, for the festival and some of my other uh, science communication, like stand up science. When I start 
bringing back that and touring with that as well. So many things happening. And last minute, I decided to line up some shows um, to do a Vegas warm-up show. So I am basically beelining it from... Um, from Raleigh to LA for some uh, cool opportunities that came up in both Vegas and LA for me. And so in the in the area, I already, if you're listening to this, uh, this is next Tuesday, February 28th. I'm in DC. Go to shanemoss.com for for these uh, dates. March 2nd, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. March 3rd, I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina. March 4th, I'm in Raleigh. Um, March 7th, I'm in Asheville, March 8th, Atlanta, and I'm working on, so that's just how far I've gotten with the booking, um, but I'm filling in new dates all the time. And so basically going from Atlanta, maybe up through Nashville, through Arkansas, Oklahoma City, maybe Denver, and, uh, I, I need to get to Vegas, um, by uh by the third week of march to uh to do some stuff with the with the uh space and then get to la shortly after to do a bunch of podcasts and promotion and stuff i might i might be flying to new york um quick after that to do a bunch of um podcasts and promotion stuff so everywhere that i'm going i'll be lining up a lot of last minute pop-up shows so make sure go to shanemoss.com and join my email list because things are just happening really fast uh with all of this i've just had a lot of like cool opportunities happen recently um especially after a really crazy two months of winter finally all of the puzzle pieces um started coming together and and uh and i'm very excited about what this year is now looking like for me this show in Vegas, it's a, uh, it's a immersive psychedelic comedy show. Um, it's, you know, I, I toured with my show, a good trip did 111 city tour back in 2016, 2017. I'm now bringing a version of that show and an updated version of that show. That's going to be morphing and changing into a completely different show as well. Um, I am uh, bringing that to the best venue for this show uh it's going to be six sundays in a row to start with the intention of continuing the show after that it's starting april 23rd if you've seen my comedy central tales from the trip which another one just came out uh yesterday at the time if you happen to be listening to this at the day that it was released but again if you go to uh, the shane moss youtube page um, you can you can find that as well. That's one all about uh, with both me and Ramin Nazer um, talking about uh, an experience that we had at the festival. Really fun story. And um, so yeah, I have I have the the creator of of Comedy Central Tales from the Trip doing some animation for the show in Vegas. I have another VJ that's been doing um, digital art and a, a video jockey, so adding and uh, video immersive experiences to domes and and walls and all sorts of like projection art to make uh, kind of immersive uh, psychedelic experiences for people. Uh, so he's ha- helping add some atmosphere. Um, to my show and putting cool backgrounds in and adding to some of my stories and some of the ideas and and um, 
I'm just so absolutely thrilled to be putting all this together. And I have like just not been in the mood to do stand up um, since COVID. I haven't wanted to gather people indoors. I haven't just, I haven't missed stand up. I, I kind of felt like I lost my passion for it. And even, even the, the uh, psychedelic space and everything, I was kind of, um, uh, you know, back and forth and whether I cared as much about doing um uh like that aspect of what i do you know i love i love this show this shows my favorite thing that i do i wish more people wanted to hear about what academics had had to say i wish henry g who's on my show coming up was famous because he should be the type of person that is famous for his ability to articulate life and existence itself in such a clear and uh, creative and poetic and funny way. I uh, So I get bitter sometimes that uh, all of our priorities are weird and I don't understand them and I don't understand why people like the things that they like. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I have, I just have mixed feelings about existence <laughs> and, and not, not existence, but, but also just the sensibilities of, of, uh, these social primates we call humans. And, and then I had this opportunity to do this show where I got to, where I'm getting to collaborate with artists and create something that's different than I think has, has ever been done before. And I'm excited again. I am thrilled. I'm, I'm excited to do these warm up shows. I'm excited to be back on stage again. Um, and so, yeah, I, I hope you get a chance uh, to see me, to see the show again. It's the weekend of the May 14th is the Sunday uh, that the show's on that weekend. And I, th I think, you know, I'll be around Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday for just any fans of this show or Mind Under Matter who want to come and figure it out, figure out how many people we're going to have. And then we'll figure out some cool group activities and, and stuff like that. And I'm happy to organize it and let other people organize it in the community and, um, and for, like I said, free of charge, I'm not, I'm not getting anything, um, out of it other than to meet all you wonderful people in, uh, in the community and, and get to show off my new show to, uh, the people that I value the most, which is, which is the people that are into, uh, like the here we are podcast and mind under mad matter podcast. You guys are obviously my target demographics. So I, uh, I, I love getting a chance to hang out with you guys. Um, I, I can't wait to, um, to do it more in the future. So check out shanemoss.com. Shows are coming in fast. I'm going to be stringing together a lot of last minute things. And once I get the show up and sorted out, because it's just each Sunday, I, I got to see how it goes. Cause we might add like a Thursday show each week as well, or maybe not enough people will show up and it will just be the six week run. And then I'll just tour with it around the country. Who knows, but I'll know by May about adding, um, more dates in other regions as well. Uh, but, but, but if, if you really want to see me, um, 
check check the website, see if you can catch one of my shows in March or plan on coming that May 14th weekend. Um, and this has been such a long introduction. So uh, a <laughs> uh, whole lot of information there. And enjoy today's episode. It's my probably one of my favorite here we are episodes that i have had are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Here We Are podcast. Today is one of my favorite guests ever from the show returning to talk about one of my favorite books that I have ever read. Uh, Henry G is joining us today. Um, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Shane. How are you? I'm wonderful. Um, yes, I you am... are wonderful, and I love the beard. It just gets oh. more and more luxuriant every time I see it. I have serious beard envy. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm trying did to you, figure out what to do with it, but for now pro- we just product, keep it. Product. It should have its own podcast soon. Uh, uh, yeah, I know, I know. I should get a sponsor or something. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't put anything in it. Just some conditioner in case I know it's been on everyone, all the listeners' minds. So thanks for. Uh, <laughs> thanks for giving me the opportunity to address that. It's yes. actually a little, I haven't showered yet today or anything. So it's a Shane's little dry beard and is brought to you by yeah. XXX product. <laughs> so your book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 billion years in 12 pithy chapters. I had you on the show to talk about it before, before I had read the book. And then I, and I just had such a wonderful time chatting with you, whatever, a year ago or something like that. I don't even remember. How, how time flies. I know. And then, uh, and then back in, back in November, I started, um, I started, uh, I, I had a project where, I I wanted to start um, writing some stuff out about the history of of life on Earth, um, and I was like, you know what, I should re- read Henry's book. And I happened to be at a very stressful time in my in my life. It actually only got worse, but during that oh, time, huh. <laughs> it's fine now. But at at the time, uh, reading your book was something that just brought me so much peace and joy. Oh, I'm and very was, glad that it's had it brought you some philosophic repose. Oh my gosh! Just just to to pull back from everything and just to uh, to really dig into and, and in such an accessible, well written, poetic easy to understand way that anyone if, if it's their first science book ever could uh, could clearly understand and just so beautifully written and just thinking about it, just the entire universe and and just everything that led us to be here just what a what a brilliant and beautiful reminder of just how strange this existence is that not not only that we that we exist in it um and as as we'll talk about uh there, there's there's 
kind of one of the one of the cool points that you make in your in your book is that life isn't very strange at all to have happened. It happened again and again and again. It's 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 harder to stop life than to start it almost. Um, but but that we get to exist and then get to experience that the to get to be a species that understands the things like the Big Bang and that we mm-hmm. rotate mm-hmm. around the sun and and that we are a product of billions of years of uh, evolutionary processes is just really incredible and and uh just brings me uh such a sense of peace and joy to think about so thank you so much for your book you're very welcome sir i'm glad to be of service I usually one, read like three, four chapters of a book, and then I'm like, okay, I got it enough for an interview or something. Oh, and then like I need that? to move I, on I, to the next. I have to, I have to complete. I'm obsessive. I have to. There are very, to. very few books that I don't finish. I, I even if I, it's a book I don't like, I doggedly, wow. I doggedly go to the end because I feel I have to do it so I can write it on my blog and say what I read, you know, ah. such and such. But um, I'm a bit of a masochist in that way. <laughs> so I, I would, I would first uh, like to um, understand: was the experience of writing the book? anything like that for you or was it was it brimming with stress and confusion and figuring out how to put it all together i mean you were able to take such dense and complicated things and and really sum it up in in such a beautiful concise well, understandable well, I, way I, i'm ashamed to say that it was really easy i mean at this point you have an author and they say no i was in my garret in paris for a year <laughs> living on on absinthe and and charity and <laughs> resting each painful word in blood from my fevered brain uh, sadly it was not the case it just wrote itself it was the easiest book i've ever written it, it just fell into its own groove uh, I, uh, there was a kind of pr- previous version that had more anecdotes and more jokes in it um uh, but it was whittled down to just the narrative, and I put the jokes in the in the footnotes. Um, mm. And uh, once I got that once upon a time moment, because it starts like a, every good story, it starts once upon it's, a time. Oh, just um, the, just get get the book and read the first. Can people okay. read just the first few pages? No, not you. Like, well, you you can if you want. Um, but I'm I'm telling listeners to like if they can just go on and read the first two pages of the book they're going to be sold but yeah this would be a treat let's have you read it okay just just just, that first section i'll just read the first paragraph once upon a time a giant star was dying it had been burning for millions of years now the fusion furnace at its core had no more fuel to burn (laughs) the star created the energy it needed to shine by fusing hydrogen atoms to make helium The energy produced by the fusion did more than make the star shine. It was vital to counteract the inward pull of the star's own gravity. When the supply of available hydrogen began to run low, the star began to fuse helium into atoms of heavier elements such as carbon and oxygen. By then, though, the star was running out of things to burn. The day when the fuel ran out completely... Gravity won the battle. The star imploded. After the millions of years of burning, the collapse took a split second. 
It prompted a rebound so explosive that it lit up the universe, a supernova. Any life that might have existed in the star's own planetary system would have been obliterated, but in the cataclysm of its death were born the seeds of something new. Even heavier chemical elements forged in the final moments of the star's life, silicon, nickel, sulphur and iron, were spread far and wide by the explosion. Millions of years later, the gravitational shockwave of the supernova explosion passed through a cloud of gas, dust and ice. The stretch and squeeze of the gravitational wave made the cloud fall in on itself. As it contracted, it started to rotate. The pull of gravity squeezed the gas at the cloud's centre so much that atoms began to fuse together. Hydrogen atoms were pressed together, forming helium, creating light and heat. The circle of stellar life was complete. From the death of an ancient star emerged another fresh and new, our sun. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh thank my you. gosh, I get teary-eyed. That's just I, I've revisited that section many times and read it to friends. It's beautiful. Mm. Um, so first of all, how you know something that I uh, that I uh, struggle with myself is I I love thinking about just the the scope and the scale of things and oh my gosh, an appreciation of how we are here, and then. You catch me on the bad uh, on on the wrong day, and then um, just the other side of that coin is just how small and ex- insignificant we we all are. Uh, do you go back and forth a, a little bit when you're kind of? Yeah, I do. I um, it's something that I think is important in communicating science is, mm-hmm. but to communicate both sides: first, the wonder of it all, and second, the terror of our insignificance in the great scheme of things. And and somebody asked me, you know, if I actually have to shut myself in a small box with my hands over my eyes, you know, sometimes. Mm. But but no, I have achieved a philosophic repose, I think. I feel a lot calmer knowing how insignificant we are Mm. on the great scheme of things, that nothing really much matters. Um, Takes the pressure off. uh, it, it, It just does that, yeah. That's beautiful. So I would I would love to um, start with uh, well we've already started, but I, I mentioned this in the intro. Um, you you did a wonderful job of articulating that life did not start in some pleasant Goldilocks zone of Garden of Eden, just perfectly primed for life to flourish. And uh, and it started in a much, much more hellish environment. And from that probably started again and again and again and again until mm-hmm, uh, life mm-hmm. as we know it took off. Yeah, life has a motto. It's called, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And mm. Darwin speculated in a letter to, to a friend that life probably started in some warm little pond. Well, mm-hmm. yes, but if the warm little pond was in the deep, dark, deep sea full of sulfur and iron minerals uh, at incredible temperatures and superheated pressures that would squash you flat, and if you were down there now, life started 
in, in some of what we would call the most inhospitable places that you could imagine, near a crack in the Earth's crust where minerals were gushing out, um, where water under incredible pressure was super, superheated. Um, and yet little eddies of these minerals would get trapped in little holes in volcanic rocks. And in the slightly calmer environment of these little little superheated, super super pressurized warm little ponds, that's when life would have uh, life would have started. But I have to say that we don't really actually know when life started or, or, or well, we've got some good idea when, but we don't really know how. So I have to put various provisos in the in the notes in in the book um, to say uh, this is the closest I get to what we scientists call making stuff up. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, there are the, the the thing about life though that we do know is it started almost indecently quickly after the Earth formed. I mean, the Earth formed and the whole solar system formed 4.6 billion years ago. And the Earth didn't instant, instantly form into our quiet blue planet that we now know. It was a whole ball of molten lava for mm. a long time. And with the atmosphere full of superheated steam and methane and carbon dioxide and other things. And yet a mere, a mere half billion years later, by 4.1 million years ago, life had begun. Um, mm. And by that time, the the uh, Earth had cooled just enough for for all the all the water vapor in the atmosphere to condense and fall as rain, and it fell and th- fell as rain for millions and millions of years, which would be remarkable even in Seattle. And in the um, <laughs> uh, and and there were a few comets whizzing in still at the time, adding various more water and various exotic chemicals from outer space that may have helped uh, nudge life along a bit but by that time life had definitely begun in the deep sea um, mm. and once begun it was uh, very very hard to get rid of yeah uh, so i uh, one thing that i loved about your book but i i know and and kind of telling some of the uh, uh, other people about aspects of it is 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 the book does as you kind of mentioned there that there this um, exactly what happened at the origin the the, uh, the very 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 first bits of life is pretty speculative uh, mm. probably the most speculative part of your your book but your well, book really does the very end where I talk about what's going to happen in the next billion years that's, oh that's true that's also fairly speculative but yeah, um, yeah uh, that's in the free extra billion years i'll give you at the end so your your book kind of just assumes i i really liked it because it was like hey this is just this is just what we know let's just assume we know this but it doesn't your book doesn't really get into how we know this stuff like like the like a really good complimentary uh um book is your inner fish by mm, yeah. uh neil, neil Shubin, Shubin. Who, yeah he he really kind of gets into how we know these sort of things and the sort of studies that are being done that lead to these speculations. And then you just kind of tell the story because sometimes I love just hearing the story because I talk with scientists all the time and I already have a sense of how some of this information is gathered. But you tell this to people and people go, well, how the heck could they know something like that? And have, have there been, um, have there been, uh, 
models and things made of of um kind of testing how life could arise from from nothingness that that you found yourself drawn to um i think my favorite one i mean there are lots and lots of ideas about how life began uh one of the most famous one was the miller urey experiment uh where some scientists put what was then supposed to be in the early atmosphere in a in a jar and sparked electrical uh, mm-hmm. currents through it and then uh discovered all sorts of complicated chemicals in the brown glop at the bottom afterwards um mm. uh but my favorite one is the problem with getting complex the complex molecules can i say molecules um <laughs> the complex molecules you need for life is that as soon as they form they're going to be ripped apart again so uh the 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 um my favorite idea is that um the organic chemicals would have got together on the surfaces the very porous surfaces of volcanic rocks Hmm. in tiny, tiny microscopic little holes and channels where they couldn't escape or get away. And also the surfaces of the volcanic rocks would have been catalytic. The little molecules would have sat on the surfaces and bound together before they could be blown apart. Hmm. Um, And that's the kind of idea that's been going on. It could be volcanic rock, it could be clay minerals, um, it could be all sorts of things like that. So that's the idea that I tend to favour. Also, there's quite a lot of evidence now that the earliest life would have been would have happened at very high temperatures. Mm. Um, That it started in in you know the sort of superheated uh, milieu in the deep uh, near hydrothermal vents in the deep sea. Uh, that would have been a good place for life to start, and, and and this would have had to have happened just an uncountable number of times, be, be, because it, it it wasn't like the very first time life started that mm. led to our evolutionary tree. That just yeah, seems that's, that's, that's <laughs> improbable. Uh, so, do you, mm, mm, yeah. Mm. Sorry, sorry. You were saying I interrupted you very rudely, oh. sir. Oh, not at all. Um, I just wanted to. See, do you think that this still happens um, regularly today, or is this is there just so much life now that you that there's not really a space to make it from scratch? Yeah, um, so I think anymore. I think the latter. I think if any any promising little organic molecules got together, they would be promptly consumed by yeah. existing life. But right. the thing about life is that it it arrived so early, and so that suggests that. On in suitable planets elsewhere mm-hmm. in in the universe, on rocky Earth-like planets, life would be a given. Life would just happen. It would just be a normal kind of event to happen on on a a, a rocky planet with an ocean. Um, uh, and, and so, I think the probability of life elsewhere in the universe is huge. It, it needn't be intelligent life, of course. Um, mm-hmm apart from you and me of course uh, and uh, <laughs> present company accepted but the the um uh, but i think life uh, is very very common in the universe i think it has to be yeah i i i think that that seems obvious to me as well um, i think soon i think we'll discover it soon yeah. i mean you know it won't be that somebody's put a gummy bear in the end of somebody's telescope or anything but we're we're almost at the point <laughs> with some of the some of the space telescopes that there are now that we can find the signatures of atmospheres of exoplanets of planets around other stars and from that you could tell if they're 
the atmosphere is what's called out of equilibrium. In other words, something or other is contributing to the atmosphere, oxygen mm. or methane or something. Uh, and uh, soon we'll be, get an idea of, of out of equilibrium processes, which is, you know, when you count off all the, uh, all the other possibilities that it might be, life is definitely in the frame yeah, uh, to, to cause that. So I, I think, I mean, I think that will be, fairly fairly soon i mean i don't know i i have no privileged information about this but um i i wouldn't be at all i mean i'd be so thrilled if it happened but i wouldn't be surprised if you see what i mean yeah yeah of course i mean even even if it, it even if it happens in the next 50 100 years that's still just a little mm. blip in time mm. um i, I have you seen um I, I think I've referenced this on the show a couple of times in the past. Have you have you seen the the docu series Alien Worlds on Netflix? No, I haven't. Oh, it's no. it's wonderful. It's it's this sort of thing. So it's it's having all of these different um, astronomers and biologists and things like that talking about what life is like here. What what oh. are the various aspects that made it? And then looking to the stars to be like, hey, well, in this area, it looks like maybe there could be. Mm-hmm. And then this mm-hmm. is what we speculate life could be like in a, in a, on a planet where it has ten times the gravity that we yeah, have, yeah. and and that sort of thing. It's really cool. So, so it, what, what what's it called again? It, it, alien worlds. I'll have to pinch my son's Netflix password. Oh, I didn't say that. Uh, don't don't you dare say that. We're gonna edit that out. We yeah. are every everyone everyone recording this and everyone listening to the show. We all have no. our own Netflix yeah, yeah, subscriptions. Yeah, we We're all bit. doing yeah. it on the up and up. Um, but well, my uh, son actually, is, my son actually says he there is no intelligent <laughs> life on Earth because he's only waiting for the lizard people to come back and claim him for their own. Um, and, uh, you can tell he's my he's boy. the rebel yeah. of the family, then. Yeah, I don't know. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Really. <laughs> um, I I love this. It, well, you and I have talked off the air um, because I've I've contacted you regarding kind of yeah. specifically some um, some projects that I'm some nice juicy projects you're yes. involved with. Yeah, yeah, and and so um, I. I, I just love this. You know, the other thing I, I've spent so much time on this show for the last over eight years talking about evolution, reading about evolution, talking with people that research evolution, evolutionary biology, psychology, I, and end of this talks about evolution. And I read your book and I'm like, how did I not know so much of this stuff? It made me feel like a fool, but I, I really loved uh, going it, I, I just hadn't, you know, I, I, I have a rather human centric view on evolution and I have focused a lot more on the last, you know, couple hundred thousand years, like I'm sure a lot of people uh, mm-hmm. tend to. But going back to after we know kind of life was formed and then we know some of these earlier processes, I, I really... I, I really you'll you'll know eventually where I'm going, but I, I love this idea of of energy, energy, energy and, and chemicals kind of um, being being able to um, combine and, and settle in, in just bubbles and, and within the membrane that then under the right circumstances just happens to stumble on a way to replicate. And yeah. and then through that, that through that replication everything else starts but uh, mm-hmm. and then and then from that now these bubbles are uh, these these little things with membranes are 
somehow taking energy in, but then another and important part of it is waste out and filtering out uh, mm. energy. And you, you have, you have something that when I, when I started reading it, it captured my imagination so much. And then it just kept on, I just kept on seeing it all through the book, which is just how very important the, uh, the invention of the anus was in our evolutionary history. Could you go into that a little bit? Oh yes, the the, the anus, the 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 a hole. Uh, yeah. So someone said it's you have the pie hole at one end and the a hole at the other. <laughs> well, early early animals, yeah. early creatures mm-hmm. were very very small, and they just took in food throughout their entire surface. Mm-hmm. And they excreted waste throughout their entire surface. But then you can do that when you're the size of a period at the end of a sentence. But other creatures, early worms, early jellyfish, they had a mouth and they were kind of cup-shaped, if you see what I mean. They, mm-hmm. they, they, they had an outside and an inside, but they only had one entrance and exit to get into the inside and the outside. And, and jellyfish and coral polyps and many creatures are still like this today. So the food goes in in the one hole and all the, the waste comes out of the of of that it's got to um, taste so much better on the way in uh well i don't know unless if it's a vindaloo curry where you know you you, you get you, you get to eat it twice so the the um um but the waste would be just diffuse it would be just like ammonia and it would just dissolve in the water and yeah. it would be just waste products now in the early ocean the problem with diffusing the waste like that is all the decay bacteria would chomp it immediately and mm. there would be no and the decay bacteria used all the oxygen in the water so the seawater was stagnant and there wasn't enough oxygen for animals to evolve or grow but then some uh, enterprising worms evolved an anus at the other end. So there was a gut that was through like a conveyor belt. So there was, um, you know, the mouth at one end and the anus at the other. Um, and then they had, it wasn't just the anus. It was the whole business of concentrating feces, what we scientists call mm. poop, into pellets that would drop to the bottom of the sea. It was a race to the bottom. See what I did there. And, um, so all the decay bacteria would go like this, whoosh, to the yeah. bottom of the sea. And so right. they wouldn't be consuming the oxygen all the way up through the water. They mm. would be just consuming the oxygen near the sea bottom. And um, that would make it easier for oxygen to accumulate in the water so the water wasn't stinky and stagnant anymore it was fresh and blue and full of oxygen and that's when animals could evolve and it was all to do with the evolution of the anus mm. so there you are it's amazing and 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 it's another thing that that uh that struck me as just such a um i always love thinking about how our idea of good and bad um, is so subjective and so context dependent. And uh, I'll, I'll often reference something like a dung beetle, for for mm. instance, where 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 the very thing that is the the most 
revolting for us. Our, our waste product, we, we run from, we don't, we flush, we don't want to look at it. We want to get away from the stuff. We don't want to smell it. We don't want to think about it is that very thing is just a thing of beauty to a dung beetle. It's its home. It's, it's, it's where it picks up. Or, or its my mates. golden retriever, my golden retriever puppy. <laughs> exactly. And, and so, and, and it's, it's a and, right little coprophage. She is. Yeah. <laughs> And and it's it's all of this uh, it, it's it's this very um, you know whether it's because uh, a, a a puppy is being curious or that there's minerals in it that aren't in common dog food or so but but there there's there's what is good is so dependent on what it's for and when you talk about oxygen for example we think about oxygen and we think oxygen what a wonderful thing we're breathing in these this oxygen stuff that we've heard about since we were a little kid and now we can go to an oxygen bar and get even more of the stuff and um but oxygen was not a life's friend uh, in no, the very beginning. No. Oxygen is one of the most lethal and deadly substances in the universe. Colourless, odourless, it burns everything it touches. <laughs> and life evolved in the complete absence of oxygen. Um, uh, there was lots of other things as well. Um, uh, so um, uh, oxygen was produced as a waste product of a process called photosynthesis, which I find it hard to say because I've got rather loose teeth. Um, but <laughs> it's the process whereby algae and plants split the elements of water um, using sunshine, and they use the hydrogen atoms to go plink, 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 plink down a chemical cascade, generate electrons, and that drives chemical work and create sugars. So the problem is when you split hydrogen and oxygen, you know, water into hydrogen and oxygen, the oxygen is a waste product and it just goes into the atmosphere. And of course what happened was it was lethally poisonous to virtually every organism in the in the on in, in on the earth at that very early time. Mm. So the very earliest mass extinction was all these creatures going <coughs> And expiring because of the oxygen. In fact, there's some creatures today which which are called anaerobes, uh, which to which oxygen is poisonous. One of the most famous is is bot, botula, Clostridium botulinum, the bacterium that causes botulism, which um, it festers in canned food that's not been properly canned. Um, mm. But of course, botulinum toxin is is um, Botox is what people use to paralyze the nerves in their face. <laughs> so they, they look young and beautiful but can't say anything. But they can't get depressed anymore because they are incapable of frowning. So that's... That, that, yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's that's another thing that is uh, kind of of a similar point is is the sun. We think about uh, it's wintertime right now. Like, oh my mm. gosh, I've missed this sunlight stuff i can't wait for there to be more sunlight in the day i just saw something some post on instagram today over this month this region's going to get 40 more minutes of sunlight a day oh thank no. goodness I, I can finally go off my meds and stuff again and and we we worship the sun and and but but the sun was not 
was not at all the friend to early well, life as well. Exactly. When early life came from the deep dark, early life came from the deep dark, oxygen free uh, uh, depth of the ocean, um, and you know, dark, well away from sunlight. But when life got to the surface, it saw the sun, and the ultraviolet radiation would have fried it. So as well as oxygen um, asphyxiating, it would have been fried by. I suppose that early life was a bit sort of vampiric. It would have to have the curtains drawn all the time and only come out at night. But the the uh, sunshine was uh, poisonous. Sunshine is poisonous. It's got um, harmful UV rays. So what um, uh, the uh, early uh, bacteria did was evolve pigments to absorb the sunshine. In other words, they evolved sunscreen. Um, mm. And they trap the sun's energy, and then they put the energy to work by, you know, making food for itself using. So, it's a it's a phrase I use in the book. Harm had become harvest. Okay, so there's this idea of harm becoming harvest. This this is just uh, the 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 ways in which um, things just get uh, used and co opted, and all these different opportunities and niches that that show up and just one's things waste is another thing's meal and, mm. and just over and over again, um, this, this is happening all through our evolutionary history. Um, uh, one of the things that going back to the evolution of the anus, this, this freed up, there was, there were these kind of um, slits for diffusing waste in, in some early life that then once there was an anus, you no longer needed these slits for diffusion in, in some uh, future species. And those eventually got co-opted into gills for, yeah, yeah. for breathing. Gills are still uh, used for excreting salt. Um, strangely enough, but uh, that complicates matters, I suppose. But mm. yeah, the gills were, you know, originally used for excretion, yeah, and not breathing. That's incredible, and and then um, and then the the idea too that uh, that then that then eventually, uh, if you kind of follow gills into eventually not being necessary once there's life on uh on land um and then those become uh, getting moved backwards uh, uh, back in the um back in the head and eventually becoming the uh the ear right yeah it's these that's these are things that I just thought I'd tell it as a story. I mean, you know, Neil Shubin tells it better than me in You're in a Fish. I mean, you know, the whole gill structure becomes the the bones that support the tongue and the throat and in in the middle ear and, and loads and loads. But the thing about evolution is it, it very rarely makes anything from new. Um, mm -hmm. It's very good at upcycling and recycling what it's already got mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, getting it to do new things. Um, one of my favorite subjects, I, I don't think you brought this up in, in the, uh, in the book, but, um, maybe this would be the time to, hmm, I wonder if we're jumping ahead too much, but th this might be an interesting time to talk about bipedalism. I, I, I guess I was, I was thinking that. I really like thinking about these evolutionary holdovers, these ways in which, like you said, 
thing things just get co-opted and and using what's already there and then some of these things stick around and become vestigial or uh, uh, some of these things are just just different patterns behaviors within a species just um out uh, outlast their utility mm-hmm. and and uh, the the reason why something was made in the first place eventually gets lost and is uh, no longer serves that purpose and now it's just it doesn't need to be there anymore mm. like a koala bear no longer needs to have as big of a brain because it can just sit and right where it is and munch on leaves without having to investigate much of its environment and hmm. that sort of thing do you do you have a do you um do you find yourself thinking about that at all in terms of um just just within us just any of these kind of vestigial things that we have where you you can just look at anything and and go no designer would have constructed something like this well, from, stra- from exactly. scratch. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about bipedalism um, in connection with my next book that I'm writing at the moment. Um, uh, and bipedalism is such the most unlikely thing. Um, we're the only mammals that are regularly bipedal. I mean, kangaroos are bipedal, but they hop and they do it differently and they use a long tail as a kind of counterbalance. And Mm -hmm. dinosaurs and birds are bipedal, but they do it differently as well because their backbone remains horizontal. But what we've done is this most lunatic, ridiculous thing which is taking the backbone, which is a perfectly good structure that evolved half a billion years ago and it evolved to be horizontal in water uh, a structure under tension. So what have we done? We've turned it through a quarter turn, so it's vertical and it's in compression. So cue backache, piles, herniated discs, um, you know, you know, all sorts of problems um, that have all sorts of health problems have come from the fact that we are bipedal um, and we walk on our hind legs. It's just nonsense. I mean, ridiculous. Nobody would have designed this to happen. Um, and the big question is why we are bipeds. Now, there are lots of, uh, you know, after the fact teleological explanations we are bipeds so we could look over the tall grass we are bipeds so that we're only we only present a small cross section to the hot sun we're bipeds so we can mm-hmm. hold tools and throw stones at each other and we're bipeds so that we can pick our noses and walk at the same time um but all these are after the fact explanations um why humans are bipeds is a big Mystery. Now, I think the solution possibly is to look back maybe 10 million years or more to when the world was a planet of apes. There were all sorts of apes, all of which were now extinct. And some of them invented this. Some of them became quite big. And uh, the the ancestors of apes were monkey-like animals that would run along branches and maybe swing below branches. But some of these, you know, having lost their tails and became quite big, um, would clamber through the branches in a kind of vertical pose. So my feeling is that bipedalism is just like clambering through branches only without the branches. Mm. Um, and, and that's how we ended up being bipeds for all... Uh, and 
you know, and now we're bipeds, there ain't no going back to the happy quadrupedal um, locomotion that most animals seem to be perfectly happy with. Hmm. Um, hmm. I... It, it it is it is just so funny how I'm I'm sure every single species just thinks thinks that they are just the best designed. However, however they do things is the best way to go about doing it, and and everything else. And, and so it is it is so hard to escape that human centrism because even things like like things like bipedal like. Well, I guess we're the only ones that do it because we're the best. We're the only ones that mm. we're lucky enough to figure well, it out. We, we are quite good at doing it. Yeah. Um, but then if you imagine an animal that has, you look, an animal that has four legs can lose a leg and still run along. I mean, the world is full of happy three-legged dogs. Um, but, <laughs> but if we break a leg, it, 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 we're incapacitated. And I wrote this in a footnote in the book. Uh, I said the animals that that apes and hominins that decided to become bipedal had to become bipedal very, very quickly. Mm. And if you like, I can read that bit out because sure. Um, so you might have to edit a pause here. So um, no, it's all good. Um, because it might take me a while to to get to it. Uh, but the, there's a, there's this kind of what we don't think about is all of those awkward steps in between um, to to get to the efficient bipedal marathon runners that we are today. Well, well, quite. I mean, they the the um, first creatures that were bipedal um, were were not well. They they could they could walk anyway. Here it is. If you're if you're a biped, if you've just evolved bipedalism, you have to get very good at it very quickly because natural selection would exact a terrible toll if you break your <laughs> leg. And this is a note I wrote in the book, and it says something I just so I wrote a lot of I had a lot of fun stuff writing the notes. Oh boy, this is where I put all the fun stuff. Something I discovered for myself when I broke an ankle in a trivial accident at home in August 2018. This mishap left me entirely helpless, a state ameliorated by the instantly accessible ministrations of the almost incomprehensibly complex and vast apparatus that is the British National Health Service, including an ambulance, a fully equipped teaching hospital, paramedics, nurses, anaesthetists, surgeons, not to mention an army of support staff, including the nice man who brought us cups of tea when I was in the hospital, and when I left hospital, physiotherapists, the loan of a wheelchair from the Red Cross, and mostly the care of the long-suffering Mrs. G, who decided at least partly on the strength of it to enrol for a degree in nursing, specialising in patients with learning disabilities. Go figure. <laughs> the National Health Service is the largest employer not just in Britain but in the whole of Europe and consumes a sizable wedge of Britain's public expenditure. Without such backup, an early hominin that broke its ankle on the African savannah would probably have been killed and eaten mm -hmm. so they had to get very good at it very quickly and walking actually the way we walk is actually quite an efficient 
energy saving way of walking, which is why you have to walk an awfully long way to lose any weight. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it will get you nice and fit and healthy, but you won't lose any weight because humans are optimized just our steady walk. We recapture a lot of the energy in each step by storing it in the tendons in our legs. It's really clever. Um, mm. So we're very, very good at walking and can walk a long, long way without using too much energy. It's really quite good. But it didn't start that way, you see. It was just branch clambering. Um, uh, but by three and a half million years ago, our ancestors were as good at walking as we are now. Um, so it happened quite soon and it had to because anything that was only half good at walking would have got killed and eaten and the Mm. others would have had to learn to run away run away run away (laughs) so in in that same uh in that same spirit of things that might seem fantastic and obvious to us now now that now that uh our ancestors went through all of those selection pressures and and fine-tuned everything um, that, that we kind of got born into and take for granted, uh, you could make the same argument about um, about being on land in the first place. Seem, land seems like a great place to be if you're a land dweller like a, like a human, but it mm. was not the most obvious uh, step in and well uh, no quite if you've evolved if you've evolved in water where you can breathe oxygen in the water through your gills and you don't have to support your weight and you're protected from the ultraviolet of the sun by being under the water which absorbs most of that harmful radiation um so you know you you're you're above water and you're crushed by your own weight you're roasted by the sun and asphyxiated by the lack of water on your gills <laughs> that you need to breathe um so tetrapods the first land four-legged animals they didn't boldly go onto land infused with a spirit of manifest dest- destiny if they found <laughs> themselves on land their task was to get back under water as quickly as possible yeah. um before they got crushed fried and asphyxiated <laughs> so um uh, getting onto land the bugs did it first because they had um bugs like insects have exoskeletons so they can support themselves on land and they're not very big as well which also helps um and uh insects invented a very and spiders invented you know lung-like organs quite early on um Mm. and so they they managed to do it before the tetrapods did it the tetrapods which were basically fish specialized for water of negative depth um (laughs) so they'd be the, the fish that we evolved from were 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 predators they were ambush predators quite big fish living in shallow water um that would ambush anything passing by and of course sometimes the shallow water would become even shallower water which would become no water at all um mm. and uh that's the milieu in which our early ancestors evolved hmm. um you so one huge section that made me just feel like an absolute fool for my lack oh, of knowledge come, or, come, or, come, come, <laughs> or 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 previous uh Surely research not. or insight. Oh fi. Uh, the, the the Triassic period. Oh, uh, I love the, the Triassic period. 
It's Every everyone everyone knows theory. about dinosaurs. Every everyone everyone's seen uh, Jurassic Park, um, but yeah, they don't have the Jurassic Park movie. Yeah, I thought I felt I ought to start the one man campaign to to make the Jurassic period more sexy. Mm-hmm. But in the Jurassic period, which happened between say two fifty and two hundred million years ago, the dinosaurs evolved towards the end of the Jurassic period. Mm-hmm. Now the Jurassic period started inauspiciously after the end of the Permian period, which saw the biggest mass extinction of the last half billion years when 95% of all organisms were wiped out by a series of unfortunate unfortunate events involving supervolcanoes that went on for millions of years. So the Triassic period started off without much to show for it, but then life as ever gave a rousing Bronx cheer to the earth and evolved the most amazing panoply of completely crazy reptilian forms, loads and loads and loads of aquatic forms. The turtles evolved in that period, turtles, but they were much more varied than they are now. They were turtles, mock turtles, half turtles, teenage mutant ninja turtles, and all sorts of turtles. Frogs evolved, true frogs and modern amphibians. Also mammals evolved in the Triassic period. Um, pterosaurs, the pterodactyls, they evolved in the Triassic period. Um, and lots and lots of other completely peculiar reptiles that only that lived and died in the Triassic. And at the end, the dinosaurs appeared, so they tend to um, eclipse all the other things that have happened. Um, but the Triassic was the most wonderful period, full of completely wonderful animals, and I would love, if I had a time machine, to visit the Triassic period, various points in the Triassic period in different places. Um, so... Um, uh, I wanted to say something about the Triassic. I felt I was on a mission. Well, let's explore it a little more. How how did it start? What what, what defined that period? The the beginning of that period. Well, it it came out of the end of the end Permian mass extinction, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so that provided a clean slate for most of life. Um, but life did get through the Triassic period um, and evolved into a lot of new um, amazing forms. So perhaps occasionally, you know, the broom cupboard of life has to have to get the, the vacuum cleaner and hoover up a f- few life forms and get them out of the way for more things to evolve. Um, the, but, this uh, was a big part of your book. Um, I, not to cut off, but I also want to talk about this is, is, is just how... Um, how inventive life gets uh, during these mass extinction events. You see, the Earth tries to kill off life. Life is an irritating infestation on its skin, (laughs) and it it tries to (laughs) apply various emollients in the form of huge fields of molten lava to try and wipe it all out and try and gas it to death. But, oh, no, life will have none of it. Um, and uh, the Triassic was the beginning of the modern world, and it's a shame, really, that we only think of it in terms of the evolution of dinosaurs when it had so much more going for it. What about uh, what about the beginning of it? 
Can we talk about that a little bit? Well, there was my favorite animal from the Triassic is a creature called Lystrosaurus, which is distantly related to mammals. And that was kind of like the weeds on a bombsite. Most animals that you would have met at the very early Triassic would have been a Lystrosaurus. And as I didn't have any were any sorry, as I didn't have any pictures in the book, I had to use pen portraits and keep it quite concise because it's <laughs> a very short history of life on Earth. So mm-hmm. I described Lystrosaurus as having the body of a pig, the attitude to food of a golden retriever, <laughs> and the um, the head of an electric can opener. And it was its cheerful go-anywhere-eat-anything attitude that um, that got it to survive the, the rigorous environment of the earliest Triassic. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lysosaurus diversified into a load of forms. Um, it survived the end Permian probably because it was a burrower. It used to live in burrows, and living in burrows is always a good thing to do if you want to hide from a mass extinction, so it doesn't know you're there. Uh, early mammals were very good at that. Um, mm. So the Triassic, uh, you know, that that was the very start of the Triassic, and uh, for about five million years, you just bump into a Lystrosaurus until other things had a chance to catch up. Mm. Um, but it was only towards the end that the dinosaurs and mammals evolved. But there were lots of other things in the sea. You know, ichthyosaurs, the biggest marine reptiles that ever, ever lived, was like 21-meter-long ichthyosaurs, and they lived in the Triassic. Um, mm. And there were all kinds of other strange, strange creatures. Hmm. Um, there's there's this idea, uh, too, uh, that I've kind of referenced before but I, I just keep going back to is is this um this intuitive judgment that we that we put on things on on such things like say the uh the direction of of evolution and this this assumption that it's always moving toward perfection and we have found ourselves at this pinnacle but there's all these there's all these examples of things coming up on land and then deciding you know what liked the ocean better and i'm gonna evolve back into the ocean oh that happened a lot in the triassic period a lot of reptiles found that they preferred being underwater better there were these things called placodonts which looked a bit like turtles but weren't and they had these big teeth for crushing clams and shellfish and then there were the ichthyosaurs and there were lots of other marine reptiles mixosaurs and mesosaurs and thalatosaurs and pachypleurosaurs and lots of other sores of which i shan't even describe that were kind kind of um, long, snaky, marine reptiles, some of which evolved into the plesiosaurs, which which um, somebody described as a snake threaded through a turtle. Uh, these, you know, things with paddles and long necks and long tails that evolved in the Jurassic. Um, mm. uh, and there were flying animals started, the, the first pterodactyls, pterosaurs. But there, was, there were really weird creatures. There's this crazy little creature called Sharavipteryx. Now, most creatures, when they fly, use their front legs to flap. This one had a membrane stretch between its tail and its back legs. Its front legs were free, and it was a kind of delta-winged glider with, oh, it was the most peculiar creature evolved. And then there were the drapanosaurs, which were a bit like sloths, but with bird beaks. They had these long 
pointy beaks and they had claws mm-hmm. on their legs that they used to hang from trees and actually they're all kinds of reconstructions of drapanosaurs and no one knows anything no one knows how true any of them are because they are just so weird and you know strange and nobody <laughs> knows what they're like uh this this happened even far more recently in evolutionary history of 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 uh of things like um wolf like things and cattle and th- kind of evolving going back into uh the ocean becoming um or or these intermediary oh, things you're like- talking about whales Ta- talk yeah, about, talk about whales. Oh, they're, they're amazing. And, the whole business of whales, they, they went back to the sea. They started with these little wolf-like running animals, Ichthyolestes and Pachycetus, that looked like dogs, only they had very, very long, toothy jaws. Um, and they were completely terrestrial, except some of them showed some some uh, tendency towards wallowing or wading in water. And then, you know, you, you pick up the you pick up the story a few million years later and there's Ambulocetus, which looks like a giant otter. And then Mm. you have other animals that look like whales but with little legs. And then within eight million years, whales are fully aquatic with flippers and living their entire lives at sea um, Mm. and evolving into giant forms. It took just eight million years. I mean, for that complete transformation to happen, it was really remarkable. Mm -hmm. Um, they were and, really dying to get to the beach. They were dying to <laughs> throw off their clothes and throw themselves into the water. I mean, this, this even you, you mentioned sloths. Sloths did, did did this as well. Turned into aquatic sloths over time oh. when it went into the water, and then decide and then decided to come back out too. So there's there's oh. all sorts of like going the, back the, and the, forth the, and the, species not being story, able to make up their mind. The mating story of Thalassocnus, the Peruvian swimming sloth. Yeah, uh, and uh, in that was in the Miocene period, just about ten, fifteen million years ago. Mm-hmm. The Peruvian swimming sloth. It also had shared its um, shared its an- environment with the, the walrus-like whale, which was like a little toothed whale, but it had walrus-like tusks that it used mm-hmm. to plow up the seabed for mollusks. I mean, Alice in Wonderland, or what? I mean, swimming sloths, walrus-like whales. What would they think of next? I mean, <laughs> you get these things that turn up. It it's is just amazing. Uh, reality is so much stranger than yeah. than most any sci-fi that, that you see. Mm. Um, th- so there's there's things coming out of the ocean and going back in, changing its mind. There's there's things that took flight. That's that's such a crazy. Like what? Once you, once you figure out flight, you you think there's no going back. You you don't no. you don't ground yourself after that. But there's there are species that that oh, gave well, it up, decided you know, that it didn't care for it. Well, it's amazing. Birds have have, have really uh, evolved their entire body form for flight and yeah. it's it's not hard to see why because flight is so expensive and difficult to do and this mm. is why birds have used any opportunity to give up flight whenever they possibly can <laughs> i mean ostriches penguins a lot of other flightless birds that were extinct and lived in the past some mm. of the dinosaurs that were feathered <coughs> excuse me the smaller flying ones were the earliest ones of their own lineages. The later ones were larger and non-flying, which suggests that dinosaurs evolved flight several times and then thought better of it and came back to Earth several <laughs> times. 
Um, Amazing. And Archaeopteryx, the iconic first bird, was actually just another flying feathered dinosaur. It's just we tend to think about it as the iconic first bird because we've known it much longer than all the other ones. Mm. So same same with um same with this kind of bigger is better stuff too, where where mm. there there's just there's this intuitive assumption of like, oh, life started as this teeny tiny microscopic thing, and then look what came of it. It just got bigger and bigger. And look at us now. Look how much larger we are than so much of life. Well, clearly, this Steve, is the best way to be. Steve Gould punctured that particular um, item in in his book Bully for Brontosaurus years ago, which is if you start small. You can't get smaller. The only thing you can do is get bigger. <laughs> so the fact that we've got bigger is really no, no big surprise. Right, right, right. <laughs> I um, I, I love. Uh, speaking of birds, this is just another one of these, just absolutely mind blowing of how uh, of the processes that eventually led to the opportunity for flight is things you would just never, ever intuitively think. Like how how uh, how critters started having hollow bones, yeah. uh, for instance. If you could talk about that, just because that, that's going back to the, that's the Jurassic period, or Jurassic period, right? Yeah, and uh, well, the thing about hollow bones, I can reference some work done by a friend of mine, Mary Schweitzer, who's worked on, ancient molecules and and try and work out how animals lived and she has found that uh, and other people too that you can tell a female dinosaur from its bones because these are the ones that have hollowed out the insides of its bones to make calcium for their eggshells mm. so um uh all the things that you need for flight like hollow bones like a rigid airframe, like feathers, like a bipedal stance, like freeing up the freeing up the forearms, all evolved a very very long time for the uh, bef- uh, before birds evolved. Um, feathers is feathers are a very good example. There are there are dinosaurs with feathers that were as aerodynamic as a as a cinder block, uh, and. Uh, uh, it was um, it was only the small ones that could use these feathers as aerofoils, but what were feathers for? Who knows? All kinds of things: picking their noses, um, uh, sexual display, insulation, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But um, flight was just a kind of interesting byproduct of <laughs> things things that were up, uh, things that were running up trees, or things that were falling out of branches and. Um, uh, and um, finding that they, their their fall was somewhat cushioned by mm-hmm. by the this feathery coat, <laughs> and and the that uh, the role of um, thermal regulation uh, mm. it, giving rise to that as well is something that just struck me as just so fascinating. Yeah, that's all to do with the way that birds have lungs you see when we breathe in uh, and we breathe out again we do it 
you know, our air goes into the lungs and then comes out in the same way. But birds and dinosaurs mm-hmm. have a completely different way of doing it. The air goes into the lungs, but then gets diverted into a whole load of air sacs that permeate through the body, um, surrounding the internal organs, and even going into the bones. And this is when you pick up a chicken. If a chicken were a mammal, you'd think it was going to be as heavy as a bowling ball but it's not because it's mostly full of air and dinosaurs were like that too and that's mm. important that's that explains how dinosaurs got to be so huge because one of the problems with being big is losing all that heat that you produce because you know if you work it out your surface area gets proportionately smaller to your volume as you grow so big animals have a lot more insides compared with their outsides so if a dinosaur were a mammal it would boil itself you know really one of these really big dinosaurs it would boil itself alive from the inside out it would be like boiling Mm. the bag dinosaur but it had all these air cooled air sacs you know the in one of these big dinosaurs like brachiosaurus the liver which generates most of the heat was the size of a car but it was surrounded by these air sacs that took the heat directly away from it, and the dinosaur could breathe it out. So this allowed this air cooling system allowed dinosaurs to get so big, and it explains we were talking about how things get big. Well, mm-hmm. dinosaurs got really big, and you know they managed to do it while being warm-blooded and not boiling themselves alive because they had this amazing air cooling system that also allowed the skeleton to be very light. Um, and which, of course, in the smaller ones, allowed them uh, much easy access to the world of flight. There's a, there's something that struck me um, re- regarding dinosaurs, and uh, which was which was the the popularity of the T Rex. I had never thought of before. Is is just so interesting that um, that the t-rex was um uh, the 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 t-rex was just something that was right toward the end it it, it was it it had one of the very last ones yeah and isn't that isn't that fascinating that that's the one that everyone's obsessed about it it was is that is that because there's just what's going on there is there easier records of it is there is there more bones available how did how did that become the one that everyone got so absolutely obsessed with well that's an extremely good question and there's kind of some historical answers i think a lot of it was to do with the opening of the west because the t-rex was found in montana wyoming Ah. southern alberta um, out in the wild west and so i think got associated in the public mind with the opening of the west and big and big wide open spaces and a kind of sense of adventure and danger but quite apart from that i think the t-rex would have been uh, a uh, a um, a focus of interest um wherever it was found because it is so huge because the teeth were so vast because it was the ultimate killing machine it was just supported by two columns of enormous legs and had a long tail and the front the front of it you know in front of the hind legs was just muscle and teeth um and there's something i suppose romantic about the ultimate 
ultimate predator, especially when you know it's extinct and it can't get you, you know, like the monsters under the bed or, you know, or yeah. something in a horror story. You get a frisson from the from the sheer horror of it. And I suppose that was part of the magic of Jurassic Park, the movie, mm. Because it allowed you, like no movie had done before, to imagine what would it have been like if it were real and if it were really chasing you, um, and uh, uh, and uh, that was. I remember going to see Jurassic Park for the first time. Oh yeah, me too. Uh, and Amazing. it was terrifying. Yeah, the T Rex. I was sitting in the very front row of a mm-hmm. huge movie theater in London at a press screening with my wife. And because uh, I was writing, going to write a review of the movie, and the T Rex roared over us, rawr, and we all went, ah! Yeah. It really was quite thrilling. So I think it's the ultimate, you know, terror, horror, death machine is the T Rex. And uh, I think this is why it uh, exerts such a fascination even today. <laughs> I, I mean, it must have. Uh, think about early European settlers that that came that came and, and first started exploring North America and just first started discovering some of some of these bones. It, it would have had to have been, uh, you, you know, you would have had to it would have had to give some people some pause. I, I think I believe Thomas Jefferson was like he he when he first came across uh, some skeletons of a giant ground sloth was just mm. like, Hey, well, let's, let's watch out for whatever the heck this thing is. I, well, <laughs> well, it, well, exactly. Now, Thomas Jefferson commissioned Lewis and Clark to, yeah. to explore the Louisiana purchase. Yeah. And he desperately wanted them to find real live woolly mammoths yeah. uh, because the idea that things could be extinct didn't was really make sense. it yeah. didn't make sense and there are so much of the world was unexplored that the view was maybe all these animals aren't extinct maybe they're just living somewhere else we haven't visited yet so yeah. so lewis and clark said you know jefferson said to lewis and clark go forth young men and discover some discover some woolly mammoths and bring them unto philadelphia so I can uh, – I've seen the fossil that Jefferson described, Megalonyx. It's the claw of an extinct giant, giant ground sloth, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's in, in Philadelphia. Yeah. Because hmm. there, there's, there's all these times through history where it was just there's, – there's these, there's these ways in which the human mind has evolved to um, do things like – um, I, I don't know, like kind of perceive a static universe, assign agency to chaos and make all of these assumptions that, that no doubt got a lot of our ancestors, like the, the drive that they needed and the faith to, you know, overcome the, the insane amount of lack of predictability and control that would have otherwise stressed us to death. And, and but I, I wonder how many of those uh, in in your studying of kind of early evolutionary theory, were there things that what are some of those cognitive biases that that um, that just misled some early scientists where where they would have came up with the solutions so much faster of, of uh, I, I remember looking into 
um, Kamat de Buffon um, a, a bit, this is 1700s naturalist guy who started cataloging uh, many of the species and had this idea of um, of like centers of creation of, of, of this idea that like, like kind of stumbling on, okay, it seems like things are morphing or something or changing over time in this way, but clearly there would have been some origin point. And so the further things are getting from this original center, the, the more they're degrading. And so mm-hmm. us as Europeans mm-hmm. are, are clearly the, the superior species and then they're degrading over time we had we had talked on our phone call about this idea of the the big bang um yeah, yeah. being hard to accept because there was this idea of like well the universe has always been here exactly the way that it has and yeah. same with these ex- extinctions with hiccups uh, or with, with these hiccups with thinking about extinction where something that seems completely normal and intuitive to us now after we've been uh um, after we've integrated that knowledge through culture, cultural transmissions and mm-hmm. evidence, mm-hmm. Uh, would uh, th- there were there were just so many there would have been so many blind spots in the evolved human perception that would have led yeah. to yeah. us not discovering evolution. <laughs> Because oh, of our evolution, we would have a harder time discovering and figuring well, out evolution. I, I, I think you just answered that one yourself, Shane. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but 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 yeah, we stumble we stumbled across. I mean, the the whole idea of extinction was uh, came up with uh, by a, a French um, paleontologist, Georges Cuvier, who was excavating fossil creatures from the region near Paris, mm. and. He said, "These are creatures that don't uh, that are not known on the Earth anymore," and that was such a huge intuitive mm. leap to make. I mean, we cannot imagine what an intuitive leap that was. I mean, when you know you don't, you'd hardly heard of fossils. When you know, even you know animals that we now are quite familiar with from Africa and so on were novelties. To think that there might be animals that had existed but were no longer there was really quite a new thing. It was rationalised after the fact by saying, "Well, maybe they perished in in the in Noah's flood. Maybe they missed the boat." Mm-hmm. And then people would say, "Well, God wouldn't do such a cruel thing." You know, the Noah was commanded to to get the all the animals two by two, all mm. of them. There hadn't, and uh, they would they'd still be dinosaurs on Noah's Ark. Mm-hmm. Um, so the very idea of extinction was not only religious incompatible with religion, but it was also a very very big intuitive leap. Like you say, these days we can't. You know, we the idea that creatures can become extinct is is not novel. It, it's easy to understand, but really, back in the day, even the finest minds had a problem with comprehending the very fact mm. of extinction that it would have happened at all. That how dare these animals become extinct? That we can't see them and have dominion over them like Adam, mm. Adam, Adam did. Um, you know, God was not thought to be quite that capricious. But anyway, the it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the conceptual. You're quite right to highlight that. It's the conceptual leap is really quite, um, quite huge. 
to imagine the fact of extinction. You know, and, and that goes hand in hand with the fact of evolution as well. You know, people think that evolution was hard to comprehend. In fact, evolution was quite easy to comprehend. A lot of people have been thinking about evolution before Darwin had. There, there was Dar farming and everything that people, yeah, exactly. like, like yeah. your average uneducated farmer would figure out, hey, you put this bigger bowl and, well, and mate exactly. with that. So, and, but a lot of scientists were thinking about what was known as transformation back yeah. in the day. The thing that made Darwin uh, unique was he came up with a viable mechanism by looking at, you know, old MacDonald's farm and what farmers were doing in his own experiments, breeding pigeons and so on. Mm. But it was Cuvier who came up with the idea of extinction. That was in many ways more revolutionary because nobody had ever thought that such a thing could happen. Mm. It was really quite a conceptual leap. Wow. Um, there, there, has, there has to be so many... It, it, it's just funny to think about because there, there's just, I, I think a lot about, especially going through, um, you know, entering year three, four of a, of a global pandemic um, and just seeing the, the ways in which the, how our intuition has evolved Hmm. made so much sense within an environment that didn't have modern technology and cities and microscopes and satellites hmm. that need to be carefully controlled to keep spinning around the earth and run our GPS and, and things. And, yeah. and, and so much of actual testable reality and, and the things that we build from uh, the, our, our ability to build greater tools and technology from um from you know scientific testing just runs so counterintuitive to if 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 you if you if if you put a bunch of new humans on a new island and then filmed them like truman show or something like that mm -hmm. and and had them sort out life they would come up with the same they, they wouldn't come up with ideas of evolution i wouldn't think they wouldn't so, so much of our modern world that is absolutely necessary for us to uh yeah. aspects of it that is necessary for us to navigate our modern world it just runs so counterintuitive to all of the other drives that we've spent two hundred thousand years and and then some um building well i mean that that makes it remarkable that there are people who actually have these ideas i mean take isaac newton now Isaac Newton grew up, you know, a fairly short drive from where I am now in the east, in the east of England. And, you know, we're talking about the, it was a pandemic that reminded me of him mm -hmm. because he was at Cambridge University during the Great Plague of whenever it was, 1665 or something. Mm -hmm. And he had to go home to the family farm in the rural Lincolnshire when, look, the only illumination was a candle. The only heating was logs in the fireplace, not even coal. And it was, you know, it was, you know, the plumbing was outside, the, you know, and it was totally primitive. And he came in this, in this environment, he invented the idea of gravity, hmm. this amazing force that could hold planetary bodies in motion and relative to each other. And um, the primitiveness of the, of the world in which Newton lived came home to me when I read a biography of Newton by James Glyke, 
he was the guy who wrote a book called Chaos, who popularized th- Chaos. I love that book. It's, yeah, it's, they, it's one of the most frustrating reads. Uh, if, uh, uh, that book's the exact opposite in terms of difficulty as, as your as your book. Oh, that well, book I, I would have I to throw out my cells. hands. What's that? I had to. Well, I read it when I had more brain cells than <laughs> I do now. Um, and but he wrote a biography of Newton, and he said one of the problems with Newton was to verify his experiments was he didn't yeah. have any accurate clocks. You need to measure how long it took something to happen. There were no clocks available to Newton that were accurate to more to anything less than fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. Not even seconds, 15 minutes, there were no accurate clocks. And th- there was no such thing as a, a local time. Well, there was a local time. The local time was what the vicar said it was when, you know, when the clock was there. And the only accurate timepieces were the sunset and the sunrise. And that's when it was the sunset, people went to bed. And when the sunrise, people got up. And when you're trying to come up with ideas of universal gravitation in this in this world that is hardly more advanced than the Neolithic, frankly, mm-hmm. you just think about how fine these minds were of mm-hmm. Newton and Galileo and Cuvier and Darwin, who lived in these, the world, as you say, before there were geosynchronous satellites that could tell you the time to the microsecond. Um, there's actually a, a very, very interesting question that was posed by a journalist on Nature's website, which was it was all to do with the future of space exploration. And the question was this, what time is it on the moon? Hmm. When you think about it, that's quite a profound question because the moon doesn't have time zones. It mm-hmm. probably should. And what would the time zones look like and how big would they be? And where would the meridian be? And how would we regulate it? You see, we've taken it for granted that, you know, the, the whole uh, – the whole zonation of the earth into time zones and the huge struggles of people like John Harrison to come up with how you measure longitude um, by using very more and more and more accurate chronometers to go on ships because it was, you know, when you went on board ships, it was it was fairly easy to learn the latitude by sighting when stars came over the horizon and, you know, the sun and the height of the sun at midday and so on. But it was impossible to measure longitude, how far around the earth you were. And so the only way to do it, the, the Navy gave huge prizes to anyone who could come up with an accurate method. And there was this fellow, John Harrison, who came up with more and more accurate clocks. And if you go to the Greenwich Royal Observatory in London, you can see Harrison's successive models. And these mechanical brass and spring clocks, they had to survive being on these wooden ships, pitching Mm. and tossing in the sea and still not lose more than one second a day or something. Uh, Anyway, so you've got to hand it to these people working in these in these conditions to their knowledge and their intuition. So uh, as, as we wrap up, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, the, the, the reason, the reason for reading your book seems very obvious to me. Um, uh, and I'm, uh, you know, just endlessly curious about this stuff. And I, I think how do, how, how aren't more people just absolutely obsessed with, 
how we got here and what this existence is. And, but I also, you know, you're, you're an editor at, at, um, at, uh, uh, um, Wait, where are you? In nature. You're an editor at yeah, nature. Ed to nature uh, yeah. you're, you're an editor at nature. You know, I I try to do this science communication thing. I, I try to, you know, integrate some science into my stand-up act. And so I, I have maybe, uh, we, we both have like a hair more utility uh, in, in learning about these things. What would you say to just your average someone just working in a factory or something like that uh, or, or, uh, doing um some admin work or something like that what what what's the what are what do they get out of reading a, a book like yours what what do you get out of um out of just kind of having this uh, an understanding of our evolutionary past i think it's a sense of perspective mm-hmm. um from my book this was the sense that I acquired while writing the book was the immense lengths of time that took to happen, things took to happen, mm-hmm. and how tiny and fleeting the human estate is on on the earth. Now, since the book's been out, there have been quite a lot of reviews on Amazon and Goodreads and so on. And there are two main reviews. One is there aren't new pictures. Well, I'm going to solve that because I'm working on a illustrated version for kids now which should be out, I don't know Amazing. when. I'm working on the text at the moment. But by kids, I mean most kids are more educated about the history of life than most adults, so it mm-hmm. should be suitable for all ages. And the other one people say is, wow, this gave me a whole sense of perspective about mm-hmm. the whole the place of human beings in the in the universe and creation. And that's the sense that I'm glad I could convey because that was the sense that, I didn't have when I started to write the book, but I very much did when I finished. Is mm. um, is 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 the terror of the length of geological time, um, mm. and this could come across just by telling a story about it. And that was the message that I got from my own book, and it seems that a message that a lot of people have got from reading it. Uh, and I should just before we close put a plug in that um, the paperback should be coming out in the u.s and canada in in march 2023 i think oh uh, right around the corner so, so yeah Probably I think pre-order so. i mean it's been out it's been out in the uk version the paperback's been out for a while and uh you won an award uh, recently for the book right i did i did i can show you it congratulations you. your, your listeners won't be able to see this it's a great glass brick there it is Nice. The the Royal Society Science Book Award, which was really quite a thrill. Yeah. It was really quite a thrill to win that. Um, It was a field of 219 entrance and uh, it was like it was the ceremony at the royal society was just like the oscars you know opening an envelope and everything Mm. so now i know what it must feel like to be nominated for best actor and then get the nomination get the award it was uh i still get a little frisson thinking about it that was was last november well deserved. I, I'm I'm not kidding when when I say it's certainly one of the best books I've I've read in a while, and one of one of just the most fantastic well, books I've you. ever read. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank absolutely you. terrific. I hope to have you back on again soon. We'll uh, well, let, let me know when the paper book. 
Um, as they, uh, yeah, well, the paper, and also I'm writing another book now on human extinction. Nice, um, love it. The, the, you, you'll have heard it here first, Shane. This is an exclusive. Yeah. It's called The Decline and the Fall of the Human Empire, mm. and I'm writing the first draft now. Is this a, I don't is, know when that will be out, but, you know, I'm writing it now. Uh, well, I'm very excited for that. So hit me up anytime that you have no, any any uh, new things to plug and we'll get you back on. Absolutely. Uh, you're just such a fantastic guest and speaker and uh, writer and the, the whole package. Uh, it's such a, a lovely time talking with you and, and uh, getting to enjoy your your humor and insights and knowledge. So thank you so much, Henry. You're welcome, Shane. Absolutely anytime. It's good to uh, shoot the breeze. Absolutely. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week. 